0: O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast.
1: Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in
0: here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you to the Houndsman XP podcast. This is our Thursday edition that we call the truth about coon hunting or otherwise known as the truth. It's normally hosted by Josh McKellis under the Houndsman XP podcast brand. And Josh is doing a super job with this. And I just wanted to reach out there and tell all of you. Thank you for the support that you've shown, Josh, uh, the, the support that you've shown Houndsman XP. Houndsman XP will strive every week to bring you the highest quality guests that we can find. And one thing about in this particular episode of The Truth, I sit down with Jerry Mall. Jerry is getting ready to retire from PKC. And um, we're just going to recap his career. We're going to talk about things he's seen in, in the sport of competition, coon hunting. Not only since he's been a professional with two different registries, but also since he started in the early 80s and, and talk about coon hunting. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Jerry's always a straightforward guy. And I can't think of a better guest we could have to feature on The Truth. So, if you just started listening to the podcast, and because of this segment, we appreciate you. But I also want to tell you that, that you can help support this segment of the podcast by going to our website at www.houndsmanxp. And you can click the support button, and it will take you into a Patreon page where you can uh, support this show and keep us on the road bringing you this kind of entertainment and give you something to listen to when you're running up and down the road with those hounds competing at the highest levels and you know trying to bring home the big money and and you guys are burning it up out there hope we can keep you awake on the road but guys we're going to dive right into it with the truth and jerry maul Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. an XP Nation, I'm excited to be sitting down with uh, a guy that uh, we've got a long history together, and uh, my buddy Jerry Mall. On yep. the podcast again. Glad
1: to be here again.
0: You know, your your the podcast you did with us is still one of our highest rated podcasts. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It might be because it's one of the oldest and people just listen to it, have a chance <laughs> to listen to it a lot. That could be. <laughs> no. No, it was good. But Jerry, uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you to get things started, you know, just for the podcast is, uh, or for this episode is... You recently announced that you're retiring from PKC.
1: Yes, it was uh it was a big ch- big change and uh a hard decision to come to. It uh there was a lot of soul searching for me and my wife Brendan and we you know, talked about it a lot over the last year, year and a half and uh I think what took us over the edge was my my surprise heart incident that started early in the year and Ended with uh, my surgery in March and and recovery following that, and it was just one of those things that uh, we decided it was time. Yeah, we well, look great. Thanks.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it looked like you even shed a few pounds. Since I have last a couple,
1: time. and and uh, actually after my surgery, I lost more than that, but I found
0: most of them. <laughs> <laughs> and what you didn't find, I found for you. Yeah, no doubt, but. We go back a long way, Jerry, and I mean, uh, we've done all kinds of stuff together. As far as for the for the benefit of this lifestyle of being a houndsman, you know, I, I still look at the the photos opportunity that we took out here that night with mm-hmm. with your kids and you and and uh, we displayed those photos on on um, on displays at major events and shows all across. Indiana for, for the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources here in Indiana, and, and trying to build that relationship between especially the, the game warden and the coon hunters, and uh, I, think it, I think it was a good thing that we did that, and then our work with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance together, founding that organization and, and different things, but, uh, so I'm happy for you, I really am, I'm happy that you, uh, you're ready to, to start this, this new chapter in life.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it and uh, and it's it's something that uh, you know, just since the Labor Day classic a couple of weeks ago, things have been settling down a little bit already and I've been I've been working in the background helping Shane Patton get started in the in his new role as director of field operations for PKC and and the demands and the stress uh, those levels have already started to to pare down
0: a little bit, so it's it's a uh, it's a welcome feeling. I noticed that your new voicemail uh, message on there say, "If you have a PKC question, don't bother me." <laughs> no, it says uh, it says, "Call Roger Dale or Shane Patton." <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, I probably won't get to the extent of saying it, putting on there, uh, "This is Jerry. I'm retired. Don't call me anymore." <laughs>
0: <laughs> It'll be a bit. <laughs> yeah so tell us what the uh tell us what the future is for PKC to fill that position as you know as you know it well
1: um first off I, th- I think in in hiring and selecting Shane Patton for the role I don't I don't think as far as the, the folks out there that would be available for such a role uh like I told Roger I don't think he could have picked anyone better than Shane Patton uh, he's young energetic and he's been involved in the um, in the both the fall and the spring super stakes the world championship and the national championship for several years uh, helping uh, he's, he's judged uh, all of our major event finals whether that be a world hunt or a truck hunt a national super stakes i mean he's he's been in the thick of it so he knows he knows a lot from the handling and judging standpoint and how the hunts work and he knows a good bit from the administration side just being just working with us for the last several years at those big events um he's he's a friendly guy a lot friendlier than i am um <laughs> and uh very likable um doesn't know a stranger so i I think he's going to be an extremely good fit
0: how much of that job is public relation type work
1: um it it is public relation a a good bit uh, as far as dealing with members or customers however you want to term them uh on a daily and nightly basis as far as outside the membership with public relations um mostly working with cities and towns as far as venues and stuff like that is is the, most of the extent of the public relations mm-hmm. beyond that um but uh the uh sometimes you you turn into more of a an arbitrator or a a policeman, rather than a, rather than a customer service type person, and sometimes that doesn't go over well. Depending on which side of the answer you're on, <laughs> if if you get the answer you like, then uh, then Jerry's a pretty good
0: guy, and if you don't, then he's not such a good guy. Well, I think uh, the thing I've always admired about you is the fact that anytime there was a question uh, or a, a decision to be made. You always referred to what the rule said. It wasn't how you felt about it. It's not whether you liked it or not. It wasn't, you know. And that's was that stands true from everything when we used to work on legislative issues with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. I've seen you do that, you know, behind the as a hunt director or at the director's desk or wherever it is, or in your role. But uh you've always been that guy. It's like, guys, this is what the rule says.
1: Yeah, and I, and I've taken some criticism for that. Uh I mean before my time at PKC uh a lot of those questions well I should say all those questions were tended to be answered off the cuff. And and some of the complaints or criticisms that we we heard were that depending on who you ask you might get a different answer. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I started do to do immediately um was if there was questions on the PKC board or Facebook, either one. I would try to answer the question, and then quote the rule. Or if if the if the rule itself answered the question completely, then I would just post the rule. And you know, I've I've had people comment, you know, why don't you just tell us the answer instead of posting the <coughs> rule? And you know. My answer to that is well I really want you to read the rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's your what's your tagline th- to be prepared? Uh
1: hunt your dog, read the blue book and your good book.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's right. I always loved that. Well, you know, is you work for two different registries. Yes. And give us just give us a rundown for the listeners that might know who might not know who Jerry Maul is.
1: Okay, well, well the the uh, I guess the first my first step in getting getting more involved in the in the back end of the of the of competition coon hunting was um in the in the 90s. I spent I don't really recall the the time frame, but maybe a year or two as a director at large with the Tringwalker Walker Association mm-hmm. of UKC, the TWBFA and um we're
0: talking back in the
1: 1900s right 90s yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so it's been a while ago believe it or not and uh so i did that for a while and uh and then i got more you know in the late eight late 80s to in early 90s i probably got more involved in pkc hunting than i did in ukc and i kind of gravitated away from ukc and um as I was becoming more involved in the PKC hunts the owner at that time Larry Meeks uh asked me if I would run for Walker breed president and um so I did and I eventually won and then once I won that he asked me to join the executive uh board as a as a consulting member or or whatever you want to call that you know to to tackle issues that that PKC wanted to put in front of a group, and that was a group of five national directors that they called the Executive Board. And so I sat on that, on that until um, probably from early 2000 to November 2004 is when Steve Fielder asked me to join him at the AKC. Um, and so I started working for Steve at that time Um, kind of unofficially in November, of 2004 and December, but I actually became a paid employee at, at AKC, first of the year in 2005. And I worked, uh, with Steve there, uh, from then through September of 2010. And, and that's when I started working, went to, uh, PKC work for Roger Dale. Um, my roles were similar at both places, uh, The main difference was at at akc it was it was kind of a restart akc had a coonhound program uh of course they purchased uh acha initially way way back Mm -hmm. and and their their coonhound program was kind of faltering and that's why they hired steve to come on and and revitalize it and so even though there was a program there we were in many ways, starting anew, we started with a new set of rules, mm-hmm. new set of policies, and and uh, a new a new way to tackle the the animal. And um, so when I went came back to PKC, of course it was everything was already solid and steady and and set up and ready to go. So that was one big difference. Uh, probably my biggest surprise to to taking on the director of field operations job at PKC is how administrative the job is, uh, meaning that uh, a tremendous amount of the job is just doing computer work and, you know, managing uh, from an administrative standpoint just details. And um, and then the rest of it involves, like you started talking about, the, the customer relations part of right.
0: it. Right, so, um, and that's I said public relations, but you're right. it was customer relations, you yeah. know, big difference there when yeah. you when you start thinking about that, but so, how much um p k c employees are allowed to to compete in p k c events how many p k c events have you hunted in well, since I, you and, started working there, and
1: uh i was I was telling some some guys the other day when we were talking about the same subject that you would think that working for PKC or working for any registry would be an ideal situation to get to hunt a lot and spend time talking about dogs and, you know, hunting the events and so on and so forth. Well, when, when I first started working for PKC, I did hunt in the events uh, on a limited basis, and um, I quickly found out that, that um, at number one, I didn't have time to get my dog ready properly. And so number two, I wasn't ready to go to the event. Mm-hmm. Even, even though I was there and competing, I wasn't ready. And uh, probably nothing more disappointing to me than that. And I think I <laughs> I I think I even hunted with you a couple times during that time. And I was disgusted because my dog wasn't performing for the obvious reason that I hadn't been hunting her. Yeah. And um, so you become, th- that part of the, the, the realization comes pretty quickly that you can't do both and then the the second part of that is that after you work with with registry and rule and regulation issues all day long and talk about them them all day long with with hunters and all day and night I should say um uh, you really don't want to go to an, an event and talk about the same thing right uh, now that doesn't keep you from going out in the woods and and spending time out there on your own alone with the dog and that's that's the kind of things that I enjoyed and The only time I really had time to do that was you know during coon season when everything kind of settled down after and the
0: world after the super stakes and the world hunt and all that stuff sure that's the only time i I could ever get you <laughs> yeah. you know to get out and and go hunting is when you had that much time but yeah. you know you you competed at a at a high level for you know through the 90s and that's what got you that recognition to be you know talk about a couple of those the the tell us five minutes you know recap salt creek salt creek kennels tell us about two of your your favorite dogs and what you did with them well it it'd
1: be hard to to nail down just a couple of favorite but but some of my favorites uh was would have been the female that I competed in my very first PKC hunt with, and that was a dog I called Salt Creek Ann, too. Um, I went to DuPont, Indiana, and I think 1988 or 89, and entered my first PKC hunt and, um, and got in that night and split, and I can't remember what the exact amount of money was, but I got like $140, and I thought that was just awesome compared to going – you know, to UKC hunting, getting a plaque. But, uh, right. uh so that, that was, and too was, was in my mind an exceptional dog. She didn't, did never receive the recognition I think she was capable of just because I didn't, didn't put her where she needed to be. At that time, I was working full time and going to school about three, four nights a week. So I didn't get a lot of hunting on her. And the fact that she won what she won was probably in spite of me instead of because of me. <coughs> um, she placed in a little world hunt, the a- 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 I believe it was ACHA then, and um, she won the Lee Crawford event at Walker Days, and she placed eleventh in the UKC World Hunt, and and a few other things. So she was she was definitely one of my favorites. And then fast forward into the nineties. I had a dog named uh Molly Ann. She was out of went back to my old Annie dog on the bottom and out of nailer. And she was uh she was an exceptional dog. Um I never I did really didn't win any major events with her, although she did compete in them and, and made a showing. But but she was the mother of my Jenny female and, and as far as a competition dog, she was she was the the one i had the most success with i wouldn't say she was necessarily my favorite dog but she was definitely in the top 4 yeah um and she was uh she was just in a class all her own and uh when i got when i lost my job due to downsizing uh at a corporation uh in Indianapolis in early in the early 2000s i sold her to john strickland and he, he had some good success with her as well mhm
0: yeah. So, uh, what are your lifetime earnings in PKC? We're asking all the guests on the truth, truth side of it. I'm thinking somewhere around. Don't look mine up. It'll be embarrassing. I'd have to look, to
1: be honest <laughs> with you. I've not. Uh, I should check. I, sh- I should have. I can tell you this
0: it hasn't changed much in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> While Jerry's looking that up, we're going to kick it over to Dakota 283 and tell you about some pretty cool products that they have over there. Dakota 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military-grade kennel crates. Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy-duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel easily fits in the back of an suv or if you're traveling with a camper shell it's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling you just got to check out their dash series this is a watering system and i've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years but this system is all integrated into one unit and the way it's designed out of high impact plastic the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it check them out Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that I can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while I'm out hunting when it's super cold I've had exterior tanks before and as soon as I go to cold climates then I've got to figure out how I'm going to get water to my hounds and the dash takes care of that so check out Dakota 283 at Dakota283.com and at checkout, enter the code HXP10 and get 10% off of your order. This portion of the Housman XP podcast is brought to you by Tier 1 Custom Calls. When it's all on the line, make the choice the pros do. Choose Tier 1. Well, I'll have to think about that and
1: look at it for a
0: minute. Yeah, just, uh, just give it... We can come back to that, but you know the thing that that um, I have observed, Jerry, is you've always been a guy that's been successful. Whether it was with PKC or it was with with your hounds or you know things like that, and and I I don't know of a guy that is a harder working guy than than you are. I've always, I mean, anybody that that I ever talked to. You go to any event, you go if if you're if you're getting a dog ready, you know, that's how we met as you which dog was that, Molly Ann? That was Molly Ann. Yeah, that's how we met as you were in the field getting a dog ready for the hunt. When everybody else was I couldn't find anybody else out hunting. Uh, just driving down the road and there you are. So we had that and but it, it the Who's Your Tree Dog Alliance, all that stuff, I mean, that comes from that german heritage background you know that people always talk about about the hard hard work and ethic and and that's what made you successful
1: yeah and i, I have to attribute that to my upbringing uh my dad's theory on coon hunting is is that's for lazy people that don't want to work <laughs> and so uh, it, you would say i would have had a big job winning him over about convincing convincing him it was okay to coon
0: hunt but i never did win that argument I wonder how much my my dad was the same way, and I wonder how much that affected. Because uh, there's times when when I'm hunting, that I feel guilty that I'm not working, but then I realize that there's people that actually work doing this, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like a a cat or a dog chasing his tail in my brain sometimes, trying to trying to sort all that out. I understand
1: that. Uh, I you know when I when I was working in in my career differently than uh than coon hunting um the way i kind of rationalized that was you know i would i would get everything done when i got home from work that i needed to do um at home and then when the kids went to bed uh then i'd go hunting and still try to get up five o'clock in the morning and did that for several years and Mm-hmm. I, looking back, I don't know how I did that, but I did. Could you do it now? No, I no. Yeah. Not, no <laughs> but I, I did look, and my my lifetime earnings are um, twenty nine thousand seven hundred ninety one.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
1: none of that in the last
0: eleven years or yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. We just ask everybody, but I mean that's a chunk of change to make off of coon hunting, yeah. you know. Yeah.
1: Um, so coon hunting's been good to me uh you know a lot of people say jokingly and and sometimes in all seriousness say uh you know if you if you think you're gonna make a living at coon hunting or if you think you're gonna make money at coon hunting you should do something else but i would have to say from the time i got my first dog i think when i was 15 or so until today um i'm very much in the black. Mm-hmm. i've i've made a lot more money coon hunt with coon dogs um started out selling coon hides and sold right sold puppies and won money in hunts if if you had all that together plus what i spent i'm still in the black
0: well would you have even been able to be qualified for your professional life for the last 17 years if you hadn't been coon hunting so right, yeah you take yeah. all those those you know that have put a roof over your head and fed your family too yeah the coon hunters and
1: registries have have uh have helped my me and my family uh you know carry out our normal life for 17 years and and that's you know that's a pretty important thing
0: i agree i agree so all right you've been in the business for 17 years what are what's what's some some of the most significant changes uh you've seen in competition coon hunting from let's even take it back to when you entered that first event back in the 80s to where it's at today
1: well if i would say what's the biggest difference between going to a, a competition coon hunting in the 80s uh versus today um i guess you could look at at it from two aspects one is the dogs and the others everything else yeah and from the dogs the the biggest change that i see is the style of dogs um when when i started being successful in coon hunts and and i should say somewhat successful when i when i entered my first coon hunt and i think it was 1982 somewhere around there um of course i didn't know have any idea what i was doing and by the time that i figured out what i was doing and started actually winning was probably in the late 80s and um the biggest difference was i found out pretty quick that pretty much all the dogs hunted together struck together treed together and it was a calling contest most of the time about who was going to get struck first who was going to get treed first Mm -hmm. and you're you're pretty. It's pretty wide open with the strike. You can kind of get by with making a mistake there, but if you make a mistake on that tree call, then it's you. You may cost you to lose the cast just on one, one calling contest on one tree may cause you to lose the cast or right. or win the cast. And and I didn't really like that. And so, the one thing that I I felt like I had an advantage at is. Is the dogs that I was raising at that time, starting with my original Annie female, were naturally independent, and um, they just really didn't care to tree with other dogs. If if they were on the same track and they treed first or the other dog treed first, it really didn't matter. They would, I mean, they would be there. But if they had an opportunity to get away from the other dogs at any point, or if there was more than one coon. <clears throat> that they were running or in the area, they would be separate. And that was a huge advantage at that time. Um and you know the I, I could maybe hunting six or eight competition casts in a row and I might have the only independent dog in any of those. The the difference nowadays is that
0: every one of them are gonna be like that. Right, right. <clears throat> So, do you think that when you first started hunting the and female on those hunts the the rest of the dogs in the cast i can I can think of a, a million ways that um you know dog could get split off maybe two out of the dogs aren't hunting over fifty yards from you or a hundred yards from you um, you know maybe somebody back in those days it wasn't unusual to to draw guys uh in a cast that would tell you tell you that my dog would check back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't unusual to say, M- "My dog will meet me o- He'll meet us off the tree." You know, that was the old standard rule. Oh, yeah, just about every cat <clears throat> to cover their cover themselves from getting those. My dog might meet us off the tree. Now you never hear that in a cast. Right. It's you never hear that. It's like, man, we're gonna gut ourselves walking a mile through there, and he's gonna be on the wood when we're when we get there. Right. I mean, that's right. it. So yeah, I see a big difference in the types of dogs.
1: Sure. And, you know, I would say that's the biggest difference in the in competing with the dogs themselves um, is the how wild the hunters are nowadays and how every dog is independent. It's pretty odd to handle more than one dog on a tree unless, you know, they tree a coon right out of the truck or something. Yeah. Um, but the biggest dif- difference overall, I would say, is the technology. You know, I first started in the hunts. You were you were pretty well stuck with uh, if you lost your dog that you either went out and looked for it or you threw your coat down and came back the next day. Right, um, but you know in the, by the mid '80s I had one of the the Johnson's uh, systems and then later on some wildlife systems of the telemetry trackers and you know and that c- kind of gradually went on. I realize there's been a lot of of uh changing technology and lights <clears throat> but i don't to me i don't really consider that to be such a huge change because everybody's carrying pretty much the same thing right you know it started out uh you know you had a wheat light or a hot light that they called it uh, a wheat light battery and a or a wheat light head and a, a gel cell battery but thing is pretty well everybody had the same thing mm-hmm. um so so the, although those have changed, it's pretty well stayed level as far as what everybody had. Nowadays, some people got thermals, some don't. Um, you know, the, sometimes those help. Sometimes they get in situations where it's so hot, they don't really help a lot. Uh, but far as technology, probably the number one thing is the ability to, to have that handheld Garmin or what whatever brand you're using and see where your dog is at all times. And it's just amazing to me that, that that is the situation now versus so many years ago that if your dog wasn't barking, you had no clue where it was. Right. And now you know exactly where it is. Not only distance, <coughs> but you can look at your map and see if he's in a woods, on a creek, in a field, by a house. Yeah, whatever. that's a whole,
0: <laughs> that's a whole, uh, we need to do a podcast on uh, winning strategies about how to use that garment and keep yourself in a position to win. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay. So going back to the, the dogs that you started hunting, do you think they could compete today? Could compete today? Um, do they possess that style to do that?
1: I, I think, um, I think the best ones, you know, the best ones I had could, um, I know
0: I'm asking you the dead or the better question, yeah. but, but, do you think the style of those dogs?
1: Well, I, I would answer that this way. The the Jenny female that I had is very stereotypical of what's winning nowadays. Mm-hmm. She was wild. She was by herself. She would run the edge of, of fields instead of going in the woods, and she would ambush coons, and um, and I'd say she would compete. On any level nowadays, with with what's out there, uh, by doing the same thing they're doing, just doing it also, and maybe sometimes doing it better. Uh, but the an two female that I was talking about, I think, would compete nowadays for a different reason. Uh, she wasn't what I would call an extremely wild hunter. Uh, she wasn't what I'd call fiercely independent, although, you know, if she struck a track and the other dogs went the other way she would tree hers if if there was more than one coon she tried to be by herself but she's the type of dog that could tree a layup coon she could trail up an old coon she could she could run a hot coon and she would you know she'd look for a coon as soon as you turned her loose so mm-hmm. she could she could possibly tree some coons on the way to some of those other dogs and i, I think in my opinion i think the smart some of the smart hunters handlers are going to realize in the near future here what advantage there would be or can be to having a dog that trees coons close to you and um, and, you know i could be dead wrong about this but i see that coming somewhat full circle i mean there's always going to be guys that enjoy the the wild type of dogs are that that's being promoted now I mean, I'm not saying they're going away. What I'm saying is that some guys are going to figure out they can beat those kind of dogs with a different style of dog.
0: Do you think? Uh, do you think the way hunting is going, especially here in the Midwest, Indiana's a hotbed for coon hunting, no doubt. Uh, but it's also one of the lowest. We we hold the least amount of public land. I think we're like number 47 out of 50 states on the amount of public land so that means this is all privately controlled land the old farms that you and i used to hunt that nobody cared if we hunted there Uh, they've either been sold and broken up into parcels or they've changed hands or they're under a lease or something like that and i see all of that kind of stuff uh, ultimately affecting the future of the style of hound that we hunt
1: Yeah, and I was just telling some guys the other day, well, during the Labor Day Classic, they asked me if I had a place they could guide a cast. And I said, I'll be honest with you. Ten years ago, I had probably 15 to 18 places I could guide a two-hour cast and feel real comfortable about it. And I probably had another 25 that I could take a one-hour cast Mm -hmm. anytime I wanted and not have a problem. I said, right now... I've got one place I could probably guide a one hour cast. That's it. Yeah. I don't I don't have a place I could take two hour cast. Now part of that's because I haven't really been doing it so I'm not I haven't been asking a lot of people permission, you know, to be honest about it. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying based on what I used to have versus what right. I have now. Right. Um and I'll give you a real short example that that really that really spells out what you were talking about as far as losing hunting ground to deer hunting and cut up uh farms and this and that since my surgery i've been walking every morning and every evening and i i've got a little walker pup that i take with me and once a while i'll take my squirrel dog well two days ago i took my morning walk and i just on my own property here and the squirrel dog skipped off there and went across the property line, probably 40 yards, and mm-hmm. treated squirrel. I walked over there, looked up seen the squirrel, said, Good boy, put a lead on him, walked back, came back to the house, put the dogs away, I was getting ready to put a bale of hay out for the cows, and here comes a truck flying in the driveway, 90 mile an hour, and guy all mad because I showed up on his uh, automatic. Uh, cellular
0: phone game camera
1: So there you go <laughs> cellular phone game camera it beeped on his phone that somebody that something was in front of his camera and he looked and it was me mm-hmm. and he was mattering a hornet that I was over there on his property and he wondered why I didn't call him and it, it took me two minutes to walk over there and get that dog and come back and had I known he would be upset about it I'd have called him but mm-hmm. I, logic would tell you he wouldn't be uh, I right. didn't even have a gun with me. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. that that kind of a prime example of what you're talking
0: about. Yeah, and, and we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with that in some form, shape, or fashion. You know, because cellular phones, they're not even running. I know people that aren't even actually running the game camera now. They're putting home security camera type stuff that's weatherproof because they're, they're cheaper than, mm-hmm. than your game camera. And I don't know how these guys get any sleep because those cameras are going off. And I've gotten phone calls. It's like, hey, are you on my property? It's like, yeah, I'm on your property. You know, but what are you doing? Sitting around looking at that thing 24-7, you know?
1: Yeah, I think they got an alert that pops up on their phone. And they're yeah, all yeah. excited because they're going to look at it and see a big deer. Right. And here's Chris Powell. And, boy, they're disappointed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should be. They should be. Um, so – a lot of changes so some of some of the things that that i wanted to talk about jerry was um uh, you know you're getting ready getting ready to to retire and hang it up and uh i want to talk about some of the successful pro- programs that that you've been a part of and and things that you think are are good news on the horizon for uh of, of hunters too you know some things that may not have Taken full hold yet, but but you've kind of got the vaccine story and some of the intent of why some of those programs were put in place, but it just hasn't developed yet or hadn't shown itself. So uh, you can kind of give us give us the backstory on some of that, and some of the intent, and what the vision was with some of those programs, maybe.
1: Well, the I guess starting with the things at AKC. Uh, like I said, we pretty well. We started when when we got started. We looked at their old rules, and we started trying to figure out how we we're gonna fix them or change them or what. And I think at some point in that mix, we said, "Let's just pretty much scrap them." Yeah, let's burn them. And <laughs> and so we started over. And so with with working with the the with hunting in UKC for years and hunting in PKC for years, of course. I had a lot of ideas about, you know, how things could be better. Now, whether whether I was right or not, we it, all do. It's a, is a whole different yeah. thing. But but it gave me an opportunity to lay them out on the table, and um, ended up in the rules, and some of them didn't. But but uh, and I I think I think that was satisfying that that program was taking off with with something new like that. And, um, but granted, you know, there's new registries popping up every year Mm -hmm. and, and they're not reinventing the wheel. I mean, they're starting out with, you know, the basic rules that we've all hunted against our whole lives. Sure. There's a few changes, but, but, you know, since the fifties, we all been kind of hunting under the same
0: rules. We've just tweaked them and developed them. Right. You know, the same way we have our hounds, you know? Sure. Yeah.
1: And so I'm. I'm not trying to say anything was revolutionary. It was more evolutionary. <laughs> right. And uh, and so I, and, until we got we got whacked with all that pause stuff, and it really really hurt the AKC program. I you know we were getting a pretty good head of steam. So so that was satisfying at the time. And and probably with PKC, what what I feel like I've been able to do is to um not necessarily change the rules but to rewrite some that that are easier to understand and easier to implement and easier to enforce and um you know over the years and as far as the rules themselves I, i hope that i was have been more of an educator you know over the last 10 years 11 years to to people that we're used to going to hunts and whatever the other guys said on the cast, then that's what they took is how the rules were. Mm-hmm. And what my main emphasis was, maybe, maybe not read the rule yourself. Try to, try to, to match it up with what's actually going on in the woods and, And keep it in your mind that way instead of paying attention to what a lot of people say. Because some, believe it or not, sometimes people will say whatever they need to say to their advantage. Really? Yep. (laughs) People will do that.
0: Sounds a lot like being a game warden to some extent. You know, you go down to the local coffee shop or the local, you know, uh, sporting goods store and everybody in there has got an interpretation of what the actual uh, hunting rules are. And then they run into me. And the first thing, well, we were talking down the other, the other day down at so-and-so and, and and they said this, well, that's not what the law says. So I was very much the same way. Let's look at the law. I mean, you can even take the daggone hunting guide in the state of Indiana and misinterpret that thing. So I always referred people to the law, not a editorialized version that's written for, um, general general information I would show people the law you know yeah. same way same way with you and and
1: you know there's some of them that are very basic and and the one that is the one rule is constantly misunderstood and it, it's due to two things I believe one is that other registries are different number 2 uh, people believe what they hear instead of what they read and that it's a tie breaking rule and the reason I say it's it's probably the easiest rule is just because when you read it, it's black and white step one, two, three, four, five mm-hmm. you know if 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 you read the scorecard and what everybody has and you compare it to that rule, you know there's there's no room for error right, but yet you know still get two or three calls a week about hey, I thought I won this cast, they said I didn't win this cast, you know hmm. so i mean it it's just. It's just something that I don't know if it's human nature. It might be men because we don't read directions. But uh, <laughs> there's something about people not wanting to read those rules. Not, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not smart enough to know exactly all the reasons, but but it. But they have reasons.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's like uh, you could you could show somebody a book that gives them. Uh, factual information that's that's backed up by you know footnotes and all kinds of things and it's all put in the back and hand that book to somebody about you know what coon dog to breed to or the and and they won't read that they'll go on Facebook and ask 25 other people what dog do you think I should breed to well I just gave you a book I, why are you asking the question I just I just gave you the book it, it's all there it's going to give you the answer I don't know either I don't get it yeah. I think some of it's because we're yeah, you know, we like discussing and debating with our friends and mm-hmm. and we're also trying to find our own way I don't, I don't know i'm not smart enough either jerry but yeah what else you got
1: well I, I, you were asking about new programs and really there hasn't been that many really new programs um some of the stuff that that i've been involved in the last 11 years that was kind of new um um we had started the whole double header idea at at AKC, and and it already started to be implemented at PKC. I think about the time I started, and that's been successful. The weekend double header hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that that I kind of got going, and uh, Bobby Wilson from down at Dupont kind of pushed me on it to get it to get. The numbers down and to present it to Roger Dale and that was taking the $25 hunts to $30 hunts and the main reason behind that was at that time the weeknight hunts were drawn better and you might draw five or six casts well mm-hmm. the only people that got paid were the top four cast winners the other two didn't get anything so the idea was at least those two casts other two cast winners would get their money back and of course once we started that the the twenty five dollar hunts just went away, and they um, get
0: their money. They not only get their money back, but that those earnings go. Those
1: those are state and breed earnings yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes.
0: So they're not they're not showing up on a weeknight cast. Get there and there's five casts and you don't get in. And it's like well, nothing for right.
1: me. And I've been to to many you know weeknight hunts where, you know, you win your cast just like everybody else did, but you didn't get anything for it. So right. so that was kind of a shot in the arm. I think that. To people, at first they didn't like the idea of the extra five dollars, but once they realize they could get cast win earnings, nowadays there's enough har-
0: of them that came in fifth and sixth now that they kind of like it. Yeah, <laughs> the
1: the problem is nowadays the way the way things have gotten, you know, weeknight hunts aren't drawn many more than than for uh, than forecasts, so the the value of it's not as well as obvious as it used to be, mm-hmm. but um Another thing I kind of pushed for was the cast win payouts at the World Hunt and Superstakes, to where you the entry fee was raised, but you were guaranteed if you won at least one cast, you would get your entry fee back, and that, in my opinion, has been a big boost to to those hunts, uh, allowing people to play a little longer. You know, mm-hmm. if you go there, if you know, years ago, if if you went to the World Hunt and you you won early and got beat all four nights. You were just out of all that money. Whereas right. now, at least if you go Monday night and you get beat, then you can enter the next night sort of for free. So mm-hmm. the the expenses aren't so hard on you.
0: Right. If you win your early round, you get beat in the late round. You still got your entry fee for tomorrow yep. night. That's right. Yep. So as long as you can you can win one your early rounds, you can keep playing
1: and keep living.
0: Yep. Yep. That's a, yeah, I like. I always like that.
1: Yeah. And then the the other thing that that I kind of pushed for was the legacy hunts, um, and some people like them, some people don't. It's it's one of those things, but the advantages that 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 were the reasons that I pushed for them was because there were so many of these big added purse open events that the. The, so much of the awards money went to the top four uh, score, scoring cast winners, high scoring cast winners, that there was a lot of incentive there to, um, to do some things that were not by the book to get those scores higher. Whether well, that mean uh, coercing people into withdrawing, talking them into withdrawing, paying them to withdraw, or helping them in whatever those ways to help you inflate your score. And those were the people that were getting in. So, for example, just say you went to the Spring Classic or Labor Day Classic or Michigan Madness, and you your dog looked as good as it could have. You were excited. You scored 700 points. It's the first time you ever did it. You go back in there, and you don't even get close to getting in the Final Four. And the guys that did get in the final four over there in the corner laughing about it, and you get a pretty quick idea what really happened. Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably not going to come back. Right. And that hurts the entries, and it hurts, hurts the registry, hurts the club, hurts everybody. And with the legacy hunts, uh, it's elimination only. So, you win your cash, you advance. It doesn't matter if you've got zero, 500 minus, or 500 plus. Mm-hmm. It You advance, and, and – to me that's more of a more of a true test or whatever you wanna call it to, to get the winners of the hunt. And uh it makes people feel like they they're uh and and there again, if you win your cast and you and you don't get beat or you don't win the late round, you get your money entry mm-hmm. fee back and and you can play longer. Right. And all you've gotta do is beat the dogs you're in the woods with, not the ones that are in different casts.
0: Yep. Yep. So
1: Again, there's some people that don't like the legacy hunts. I'm not trying to make it sound like they're the best thing since sliced bread. But um, in my opinion, they, you know, they pay the club better. They pay the hunters better. And it's a more fair system.
0: Yeah. I like it. I like it. You got anything else?
1: Uh, that's about it.
0: All right. So looking back over your career, if you could change one thing about competition coon hunting what would it be
1: if if i could wave a magic wand and, and change one thing regardless of what registry they're hunting in uh and what they're competing in it would be to get rid of the negativity in the sport and along with that negativity um well i, I guess they to to kind of encapsulate the negativity that i'm talking about is just say when when Jake was ten years old and you took him to a hunt. Mm-hmm. The things you experience on the grounds at that hunt could there, there's some things you that you would not want to expose your son to. Mm-hmm. And what and and I I call that whole bunch of things negativity. And whether that's vulgarity or cheating or Whatever you want, right? Uh, you know, right. putting other people down, putting yeah. other people's dogs down. I mean, everything you can lump into negativity.
0: You're contributing to a negative environment where you're at, and uh, I mean, that's <clears throat> you know the story. I'm not going to call it out which which event it was or anything like that. But that was the final straw for me for competition coon hunting. Is I was at an event, and there were ladies present. And there was no regard for their presence. And I looked around and I thought, what am I doing here, spending my money to be here? You know, I would rather spend my money and go, for the money I'm spending right here, I can go travel and hunt with people that I know that share my values and things like that. And, and um, that was, I think that's the last event that I actually entered and I've, there've been other things when I was raising my kids, Jerry, that I was really involved in that when it got to that, um, you know, I'd look at, look at the people that were there and it's like, well, I don't want to raise my family in this environment. So, but the negativity, I mean, do you think it outweighs the, the positive things that actually go on or? No, the, the one thing that
1: has always been a puzzle to me, um, Is that when you when a coon hunter is in need, there is no better friends than other coon hunters. Mm -hmm. And you know the best example that I have about that because you were involved in it is when my daughter Bethany was diagnosed with cancer. The the area clubs and individual coon hunters um, came out of the woodwork to help me. Yeah, and even. Even people from outside this area, you know, states away, would mm-hmm. send stuff to help. Yep. And, and, uh, and that's why I think a lot of the negativity that I'm talking about is just part of the atmosphere that we currently have. And I don't really know how to change that atmosphere. In other words, I'm not saying those people are naturally negative people. Yeah. But, but when they get in that environment... That's what happened.
0: Do you think think it's because we are so passionate about this thing and we know what it can be, so it's kind of a disappointment to us that it's going on? And for me, I I think, you know, as we talk about it and I talk through it here, it's like, man, this could be such a great thing. This could be a good place for families and we could do things for veterans and children's hospitals and everything else. But when you show up and you act like that, I don't want I don't want my kid to listen to that. I don't want I, my wife's not gonna feel comfortable here. So now I've got to make a, a decision based on do I take my kids on vacation or do I go to a competition coon hunt? You know? Mm-hmm. And if I could do both, if I could go to a competition coon hunt and make it fun and be the type of environment, that'd be great. And it's not like this everywhere you go, but at the same time, I want it to be that way so bad so when I see it, then maybe I inflate it. Of how bad it actually is probably yeah yeah because i want it to be great yeah. and then i'm like oh crap it's not you know yeah. well and and the other
1: thing that you could get the wrong impression about real quick and and that's why i'm glad you brought the other side up or asked me about the whether it's it's really that way or really it, whether it just looks that way is because many of the people that i see involved in maybe that negativity or vulgarity or whatever I know those people, and I know they're really not that much like that. Mm-hmm. And if they're not in that environment, and if they're in a different environment where I've seen them, they're not like that at all.
0: Exactly. I know. I've seen it too. You and know? so
1: it's hard to describe because that environment perpetuates. More. You know, the the one way I guess I've described it over the years is if you work in a construction crew, whether it's, it's framing houses or laying brick or, or pouring concrete, whatever. When you first start in there, you may not think so, but within a couple of weeks, you're going to be acting just like they act, whatever, however that is, whether that's good <laughs> or bad, and those kind of groups that you would to bet. And it's sometimes a, a factory worker could be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the example that you gave of being at that hunt with, with women around I'll bet those guys weren't even thinking about it. They weren't because that's they were in that environment and they were just cutting loose.
0: That, and and you you know I, we don't want to keep going on this too far, but I'll say this positively about it. Years ago, we were hunting at a at a hunt somewhere. It was a big event, and there was you know some some of the same crowd was there. And they you know, you're like, man, you know, I don't like that guy very well. I don't like the way he's acting. And as the cast left, uh, got out on the state road and and there was an accident out on the state road and the police weren't there. And these guys that that I had made this judgment about, this character judgment about, Mm -hmm. they were pulled off of the road, delaying their own cast and helping the people that needed help. So, yeah, we talk about that sort of stuff, but we got to be careful. We have to be so careful when we start you know, trying to lump in everybody into that. I still love going to the events. I was at Autumn Oaks and saw old friends and, and stuff like that. And um, So when you look at both sides of that, th- like you said, when you're in need, man, these people will step up.
1: The, the heart of the coon hunter is knows no bounds.
0: Right, right. I agree. I agree. All right, let's see. Let's see what we got for this one. Advice for hunters who want to be successful in competition. You got a new guy and he's he's got his dog and he's been hunting and he's all pumped up and he's going to his first event and if he wants to be the next you know Josh McKellis, <laughs> Josh Michaelis of the Coon Hunting World. <laughs> I'll put that in there since Josh isn't with us. So what are you telling? Well, I- uh,
1: aside from from getting that dog ready uh n- knowing and understanding the rules um as an individual not not trying so hard to take in all this information from other people but to to understand the rules and how how to apply how they're hunting that dog and getting them ready to to compete under those rules I think is a very important thing. Um, I would say to take what they see and hear from other people about how to do that with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. uh, because I know g- growing up in the sport, i I had a lot of of um, input from other people, and a lot of it wasn't very good, and and they meant well, but but it it really wasn't helpful. Mm-hmm. In fact it, it was it, it took some things the wrong direction. But
0: how did how does a young hunter learn that stuff? How does he how does he get there?
1: And it, the, that I would say the best way to sort that out is when you hear something or see something that you're saying, eh, I'm not sure if that's right then that's when you consult your rule book and see if it's right. Mm-hmm. And that way, you don't have to go back into them other people and argue with them and tell them they're wrong. You just go about your business and do it the right way. And and there also will be some handlers as you're coming up in the ranks that are going to tell you, you know, in order to to pull the wool over, wool over these guys' eyes and get by with this, you need to do this. And you always got to argue. You know, there there's people that will tell you, you always have to argue for your dog and stick up for your dog. No, you don't. That's what the rules are for. If if you know if you deserve a minus under the rules, then take your minus. If you deserve plus a circle, take that too. You don't have to argue for your dog constantly, and mm-hmm. you don't have to 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 make it that way. And if you don't make it that way, you'll enjoy the competition hunting a lot more. Mm-hmm. And if you take the other advice, I would give them is that after every competition hunt, take note. What if? What could my dog have done differently to win that cast? And what could I have done differently as a handler to win the cast? And those are the things you work on. Mm-hmm. And if you leave the cast thinking, I'm upset, I'm mad, them guys screwed me out of this, that, this way, and that way, and whatever, you, you're not going to get better as a handler, and your dog's not going to get better. So if if you can somehow turn that into... You know what? What could I have done different? Or what could my dog have done different? And see if you can, you know, get yourself and the dog to do that. Then it really, a lot of times, it doesn't matter what the other guy does. Um, you know, if your dog trees enough coons, you know, they they can't do much to you. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I. That's probably the advice I would give.
0: Yeah, we used to do the same thing in military operations or law enforcement. You have a debriefing after after it was over, and you talk about the things that that you would do the same things you would change. You know, yeah. And, well, and I even I do that when I'm just out hunting. You know, with the yeah. hound, I look at it and I'm like, okay, I need. I, I always evaluate the last, you know, the last tree or the last drop. So yeah, yeah.
1: If you get beat, you have to go in there and catch your dog after the hunt. While you're leading your dog to the woods, just have a discussion with him about what you two could have done different.
0: I'll tell you, I think the biggest myth about competition hunting, uh, if you get cheated, there's only one person to blame. And that's th- this is not the myth, but we hear the myth, oh, I got cheated, so I'll never go back. If you got cheated, nine times out of ten, there's only one person to blame, and it's that person that's looking you b- back in the mirror. Because all the rules are set up. To be able to 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 question that you 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 did something within that cast that allowed somebody to take advantage of the situation. There's there's some legitimate yeah. stuff, but but
1: yeah, I'd say for the most part that's true. I mean, there are some ways that you can be cheated that there's nothing you can do about. I agree, and and there's some ways that people can try to cheat you. That you can do something about and prevent. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it, it falls into one of those two categories. It, if you draw out in a four dog cast with three buddies and they've determined which one of them are going to win before you turn loose, and it's not going to be you, um, I mean, there's not a lot you can do. Sure, you can question, st- you can ask for a cast vote, you can question mm-hmm. it. And you can take it back to the panel. But if they're going to cheat you, they're going to lie in the panel. And you're not, I mean, if you write them up for misconduct, when they send their statement in, they're going to lie. If you go back to the panel and tell them what happened, they're going to lie.
0: But But if you have a dog that trees more raccoons than their dog, because you're prepared and you did that part of it, they're going to have a harder time.
1: They'll have a harder time. But if they choose, if they Get together, and they choose. They're not going to see those raccoons your uh, yeah. There's not a whole lot you
0: can do. Three blind mice,
1: right? And I'm don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint the picture that that happens more than the other. I would say, by and large, if you get beat and feel like you got cheated, you probably didn't do everything you could do. I would agree with that 100. I, I guess is that all the time? No.
0: Just my 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 personal experience. Looking back, you know, I entered my first competition hunt in 1983. And, and I can't remember, I can't remember hardly, I, I can't recall any specific time that, that I didn't look back at the situation and did, couldn't find a way that I could have been successful or won that cast. Uh, if... Either I needed a better dog, <laughs> I needed to hunt more. I, I should have known that rule that that I got manipulated on or I didn't understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was always something in there that, that I personally could have done to either better my chances or made me successful.
1: I, I would agree. The vast majority are going yeah. to fall in that category. Yeah. You're going to, if you hunt very long, you're going to eventually get cheated in a way there's nothing you can do about Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen very
0: often. Not very often. It's a, it's a rare thing. And it just seems like the reason I brought that up is because it seems like anytime somebody – I mean, Old Blue always looks good back here on the creek. You know, when you're when you're just out here, you and Old Blue, it's like, man, I could take that dog to town. I know I could just win. And you've got all these expectations. And then you get there, and instead of saying, Old Blue isn't the dog that I thought it was, you know, I got cheated. Yep. I got cheated. So –
1: that is one hundred percent true.
0: Yep. So Jerry, what's the plans for the future? What kind of plans you got for the future? Are you gonna you gonna start cooning again?
1: Uh, yes, I definitely will. Now, whether <laughs> I whether I compete in another competition hunt, I don't know. But um, I guess it just depends how number one how good my dogs get. Number two, if I get bit by the bug, making me want to do it again. Yeah. But um, but I do have a young dog that I'm gonna work this season and. Uh, Already started working on her some, and and I've got a squirrel dog, so I plan on spending a lot of woods time in the day and night. Um, between me and Brenda, we got probably list of list of things that need done around the farm that I need to do, and um, I'll probably get some more cows, um, and probably do a little bit of traveling, not to hunts, but mm-hmm. regular like vacation traveling. And because uh, we haven't done a lot of that and. Um,
0: but you found ways. I mean, Brenda, there's been several times when you've been on the road going somewhere and I call you and Brenda would be with you.
1: Oh, yeah. If, and and I've told other people this. If it wouldn't be for the fact that the Brenda did go with me quite a bit over the last several years, I probably would have would have had to make this decision a long time ago just because it it uh, it helped ease the pain. As far as being away from home that much and traveling that much away from home, and uh, having my wife with me, it, it was it was a blessing.
0: Yeah, yeah, good deal. So, are you gonna breed any more litters at Salt Creek Dream Walkers?
1: Uh, that's yet to be determined too. But I I still have some frozen semen on the old socket dog, so I'll probably be raising some. Probably not a lot. You
0: gonna breed her to any, breed him to any Blue Ticks? I might. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you've, I mean, we could do a whole episode on, on uh, Salt Creek walkers and the impact that you've had just on breeding tree walkers, Jerry. I hope you get, hope you get back into it. You've got a lot of knowledge on that and a lot of good history. So hope you get back to breeding some of those dogs.
1: Yeah, I'll probably do some, just not to a large extent.
0: Right, right. Well,
1: you got anything else? Nope. I appreciate being a part of this again, you gonna you' going to drop off the
0: radar for a while. Fly. Uh,
1: I'll probably be on the radar, but just just a blip every once in
0: a while. All right, good deal, man. Well, Jerry, I appreciate you taking time and and sitting down with us and sharing your story, and appreciate it. Okay. Well, All thank right. you. Well, until next time, Jerry. You follow your hounds. I'll follow mine.
1: Sounds good. And your swirl dog. Follow your swirl yep. dog too.
0: All right.